Hitting record. Uh, so I've started doing the podcast thing, and I can no longer just say hey to like Anita and and Ollie because it turns out a lot of people are listening to that now. So to all the people who shared that around, that's that's great. Uh, for the sake of the recording, you're missing that things are falling down on top of Katie in the corner. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, so as you know, most of you, I went to a conference, I don't know, about a month ago now, an Anabaptist Association of Australia and New Zealand conference. Um, Anabaptist is kind of a, it's not a denomination, but it is a kind of worldview of theology. So if you go back to Catholicism, and then there was the Protestant kind of schism. Um, so the, the Protestants, uh, you know, the, the Martin Luther thing was kind of like, well, we think being saved by faith is important. Justification, not by works, but by faith. And so they split off and they were killing each other a lot because they disagreed with each other. Uh, but at the same time, a bunch of the guys, uh, I think it was a guy named Zwingli, he had a bunch of students in that Protestant Reformation who went, well, you haven't taken this far enough. Uh, and they, they decided to come up with a whole bunch of extra things and take, take that schism a little bit further. And that's where we get Anabaptists from. Now, the Anabaptists... They end up doing a whole bunch of weird things too. So the Anabaptists is where we get Amish. It's where we get Mennonite. Um, it's around the same period of time for things like Seventh-day Adventist. Um, like there are a whole bunch of stuff that birthed in that same moment. Um, so I'm hoping to do some history on that. I'm not going to do that now other than what I just did uh, in the nearest future. Except to say I've been looking at the origins of the Anabaptist worldview a lot more because uh, I've been kind of calling myself an Anabaptist for quite a few years now, uh, and we've looked at it a little bit, but I'd like us to look more at that. Um, one of the really key distinctives of the Anabaptists, though, compared to, say, the kind of Catholic movement and then the more mainstream Protestant movement, in the Protestant movement, they really said justification by faith is important, which meant the Pauline epistles were really important because they talked about that. Um, so much so did uh, like Martin Luther, he thought that the book of James, because it didn't say anything about being justified by faith, kind of looked like you were justified by works or made a Christian by works or saved by doing the right thing. He hated the book of James, wanted to take it out of the Bible. Kind of crazy. Yeah, he was really not into it at all. Um, but because of that, the Protestant thing really heavily focused on those Pauline epistles that talked about being saved um, through faith even to the extent of saying, we actually think they're a bit more important perhaps than the Gospels. Whereas the Anabaptists said, no, no, we're Christians. We're not Biblians and we're not uh, Paulites. We're not whatever. We follow Jesus. So the beginning and the end of what's important starts with Jesus and everything else is secondary, even the epistles, even the Old Testament. Everything else is a shadow. The further you get away from Jesus, the more you have to say, mm, how do we feel about this? Uh, so they were completely Jesus-centric in their interpretation of scripture and in their, in their worldview. Um, and in the midst of all of Jesus' teachings, they said the pinnacle or the, the highlight of Jesus' ethical teaching and moral teaching and worldview is found in the Sermon of the Mount. Um, so the Sermon on the Mount, um, normally we go to Matthew 5, kind of 6, 7. Um, that is the central theme of Jesus' ministry. Uh, so I want to kind of have a look at that today. Um, and from a slightly more Anabaptist perspective than, than what I think we've looked at it in the past. Uh, but I want to start in John 1. And since we're in the Message Bible, um, the Message is like a translation of the Bible that was just by one bloke 
And so it's largely his opinion of what it should say, uh, but he's a really cool guy and his translation is really easy to read and fun. So I'm going to start with that. And it simply says, The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. Uh, now, I'm beginning to sound like a broken record when I say that God is like Jesus. But in the last couple of years, this has become my central kind of guiding hermeneutic, uh, guiding principle for faith, is that God is like Jesus and that God has always been like Jesus and that any time we think God is not like Jesus, we're wrong. Uh, any picture that we have constructed of Jesus, even a well-meaning, authentic uh, attempt to construct a picture, if it doesn't look like Jesus then it's not a complete picture because God is exactly like Jesus. Uh, In Hebrews, right at the beginning of Hebrews, it says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. And uh, this this is the really important verse. It says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus is the shiniest bit of God. He is the most obvious, most true, most clear representation of God. He is the exact representation of God's being. God is like Jesus. He is the walking, uh, talking, manifest representation of the kingdom of God on earth. The time that Jesus spent with us, he shows us totally and perfectly what God is like. So when we want to see how does God feel about something, the best thing and the the first thing we should do is to say, where do I see Jesus reacting or interacting or engaging with this same type of situation? In 1 John 2.6, it says this simple thing. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. If you want to claim to be a Christian, a follower of God, if you want to be in him, you must do as Jesus did. Being a Christian isn't foremost about having the right ideas. Um, it's, it's about living as Jesus did. And this shouldn't be a controversy. It shouldn't be controversial to say, if you live like Jesus, then that's what it means to follow Jesus. But it's really quick uh, and really easy to get caught up in theological nonsense and to get caught up in learning and learning and learning or to get caught up in a particular doctrine or worldview and to make that more important than living like Jesus. So when we go to the Sermon on the Mount, this is like the the heartland of, of the Anabaptist worldview. It just shows us what Jesus thinks about a whole bunch of things. It's the centerpiece of his teaching on how we should live. Uh, Now, I suspect most of you have heard the Sermon on the Mount uh, and especially the Beatitudes at the beginning. Um, It's a very well-known scripture. It's uh, even in Monty Python, Life of Brian. They talk about blessed are the cheesemakers. It's a a really blessed are the cheesemakers. See, I misheard it. Uh, You know, that seems to be the theme in that verse. Um, in that uh, movie. (laughs) And in many ways, we have become immune to the controversy of what Jesus said. Right? We listen to it and we go, that's pretty reasonable. Oh, that's very nice. Or we've heard this before. Or yes, of course. Without realizing that what Jesus was saying was totally revolutionary. 
It was completely countercultural. It was turning the tables over utterly on the way that the, the Jewish worldview um, said that they should live in the world. It is not simply a collection of nice sayings. It is a radical countercultural call to sacrifice and discipleship and mission. And it was subversive and dangerous to live and do what Jesus was claiming could literally get you killed. It was subversive and dangerous and completely outlandish. And for Jesus, at least, it was really, really dangerous because he kept using this phrase. So after the Beatitude kind of blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, he then goes on into a series of, of teachings where six times he uses the phrase, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. And what he's saying is, regardless of what your scriptures say, it doesn't matter what your prophets say. It doesn't matter what your law says. I am going to tell you what the truth really is. Which, to a bunch of Jewish people and Pharisees and teachers of the law and scribes, probably not a great strategy for staying alive. He's literally saying to them, all the things that you hold dear and that you believe to be true, I'm going to tell you that they're not really true. And here is the actual truth. It was a scandal. So I'm picking up uh, right at the end here. I'm just going to read this. It says in Matthew 7, 28 and 29, when Jesus had finished, so this is at the end of this section, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. This is pretty pretty bold claim here. What it's saying is the teachers of the law, they gained their authority from the law. So they'd say, well, Moses said this and this is what I think about it. Or the law says this and this is what I think. In, in, you know, that, in our holy scriptures, it says this. So they gained their authority by, by a claim to authority because of the, the text that they were reading from. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus said, I have authority because I'm right. And at the end of this section, it says that they were amazed by his authority, which was completely different to the type of authority that was expressed by the teachers of the law. I tell you the truth because I am the true authority. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you six times. And then the last time in Matthew 5 uh, from verse 43, he says this. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for people who persecute you. That way, you will be children of your father in heaven. To be a child of God is to love your enemies. That way, you will be a child of your father in heaven. What? This doesn't look like the sinner's prayer that I prayed when I got saved. I don't know if you ever went to a Pentecostal holdup where you put your hands in the air for worship and then you kept your hands in the air and emptied your wallet into a plate. And you know what I mean? Like, uh, that's not the sinner's prayer that I got given. I, I had to confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, to believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. I had to do the Roman um, track to salvation. I had to, to do those things because that's what it meant to be a Christian. But Jesus is saying, if you love your enemies, that's what it is to be a child of your father in heaven. And all I can think when I read this is that Jesus has terrible theology. Which is why in the Protestant Reformation, they didn't really quote Jesus all that much. They liked Jesus because he died for their sins and bore the wrath of God. 
But they didn't like his teaching so much where he just said, love your enemies. There wasn't enough hoops or opportunities to, to, you know, to manipulate or cajole there. He just said, love your enemies. Now, you've got to remember the enemies of the Jewish people. It's not like today. When I think of my enemies and I think of the people who stop in the car park in the morning at the front of my kid's school when I want to drop them off and they just get out of the car in the middle of the street because they're too lazy to wait for someone to move out of the parking bay. So everybody is what I heard. They're my enemies. Those people, I want to get out of the car and pick up one of the traffic cones that's blocking the, the other rest of the street. Smack them on the head with it. Seriously, who does that? Who stopped? So my enemies, probably not the same criteria for, for what Jesus is talking about. When I think about enemies, I think about Southsiders. Uh, when I... Thanks for that big, big laugh over there. When I think about enemies, I think about someone who sent me a mean message on Facebook. But uh, for the Jews, their enemies were an oppressive government and an oppressive invading force that literally killed them just to, to flex their muscles. You know, there was a slave revolt once with the, um, with the Romans. And, and then just to prove a point at the end of it, the Romans crucified 6,000 people. From the, I think it was from Capua all the way to, um, to the, to, um, I think it must have been to Rome or to Jerusalem or something. They crucified 6,000 people just to say, we're the boss, you'll do what you're told. The Romans were a bloodthirsty, evil um, government that came in and, and just, they were terrorists. And Jesus is saying, love your enemies. He's not saying, love the annoying person in the car park. He's saying, love the person who wants to crucify you. Love the person who wants to desecrate your holy temple. Love the person who is going to destroy your entire world. Love your enemies. Nobody did this. This is Jesus' litmus test for good doctrine. This is Jesus' standard for what it is to be a child of God. Do you love your enemies? And I've got to be honest, it's not a very thorough creedal statement. All through history, the church has come up with creedal statements. Even now, there are places doing it. Um, there's, a, there's a group in America that keeps putting out new creedal statements. Every time there's a controversial issue, they put out a creedal statement. And if you're not willing to sign it, then they tell everyone that you're a heretic. If you're not willing to join their special club. See, Jesus, his special club is really simple. He says, if you love your enemies, you're a child of your father in heaven. But we want to uh, believe, or we've been told to believe, or we have been manipulated to believe that our salvation or our faith is somehow judged on the basis of our theology on sexuality or creation or our doctrine of atonement or eschatology or heaven or hell. And I can just, like, I don't know if you see the mean version of the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus is like, love your enemies. And they're like, but what about? And he's like, did I stutter? Do I need to be more clear with you? Love your enemies. Yes, your Muslim enemy and your gay enemy and your, the person you disagree with, the different ethnic group. Yes, the Samaritans, them too. Love your enemies. The reason I'm saying enemy is because I want to encompass everyone. I already assumed that you will love your friends and your family. And now, because you're really thick, I'm extending the, 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 the gap all the way across to cover the entire spectrum of everyone there is. Love your enemies. See, the good news is, is that Paul picks up on this so that we can believe that there is some actual theology behind Jesus' worldview. Um, so Paul says this in, in 1 Corinthians about love. 
uh, in chapter 13, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So you can have every other checkbox. You can sign every doctrinal statement and every creed and you can do all the right things and you could have the full understanding of all the mysteries of the scriptures and have every right idea. But if you don't love your enemies, you are not a child of your father in heaven. That is the litmus test. That is the only doctrinal statement that Jesus makes here. Because it's about practice. It's about are you in Christ? Do you do as he did in order to be one with God? See, there are plenty of people in history, if you look it up, there are like books of like, like the Fox's Book of Martyrs. You can literally just look up all the people that have been killed. And most of the people that have been killed for their faith have been killed by other Christians because they had bad ideas. No one ever got, like, when I read through those books, there isn't one person that got killed for not loving enough. No one said your deepest heresy is that you are unloving. Your terrible heresy, the reason that we are going to persecute you or make you recant is because you are unloving. No one ever did that. When Calvin was killing people, when Martin Luther was encouraging people to be killed as well, when all this stuff was happening, they were, they were all you know, killing their enemies because they had good theology. But it didn't occur to any of them that the most important central thing was to do as Jesus said, to love your enemies. In Matthew 22, it says, Teacher, what, uh, which of the, is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replies, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In Luke chapter 10, it records this same conversation. Uh, and, and in this conversation, a, um, a teacher of the law, an expert of the law says to him, who exactly is my neighbor? He's looking for a loophole on the who I love law there on Jesus' claim. People are always trying to redefine neighbor uh, as only the people that they choose or the people that they like or the people they're friends with. People want to redefine uh, who our neighbor is on the basis of their skin color or their country of origin or their sexuality or their demographic socially or their ethnicity or their religion. We like to define neighbor into a certain category of people that we can feel comfortable loving, that we can manage to love. Uh, but in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is closing the loophole. Because uh, he is a great teacher of the law. He, 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 he can see what's going on here and he closes the loophole. Prior to this, he talks about, um, he says, don't ever swear oaths. And they're all like, what are you talking about? Everything we do, our whole temple system is about swearing oaths. We kill stuff, we make promises. That's the whole way we do faith. And he's like, no, 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 no more swearing oaths. Your yes is your yes. Your no is your no. And the reason he's doing it is he's closing a loophole because they were going to say, well, I said that I do that thing, but I didn't swear it on the altar. So it wasn't a real promise. You know, so they invented a loophole around just saying the truth. 
So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus closes that loophole. And then again here, he's like, just in case you thought that neighbor meant a certain person or people group that you were comfortable with, neighbor means everyone, including your enemies. He closes the loophole. And it's not an isolated thing. Jesus telling us to love people is a pretty consistent theme of his ministry. And it being the litmus test for, for, for being part of his kingdom is pretty well established as well. Uh, there's another scripture um, from Matthew uh, called the, the parable of the sheep and the goats. You may have heard it. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For your doctrinal statement was very correct and your self-righteousness towards everyone else was commendable. It definitely doesn't say that. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat and I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. To love people and to love the people who are distant from us, who are separate from us, who are different from us is a fundamental element of what it is to be a Christian. When I look at Jesus and I say, what does love look like for Jesus? Because what does love, loving your enemies look like? What does loving people who are of a different social class or gender or a different ethnicity or what, is, what does love look like for Jesus? I see some really simple truths that he lived out instead of simply making a doctrinal statement about. When I go to churches, I changed our doctrine statement as a church this week a little bit. Sorry about that. Um, I got rid of a whole bunch of stuff that said, this is what we believe and just said, this is what we like to do. It made more sense to me to do that. And then I put a link to somewhere else that said, we think some of those things too, for people who are really uptight. But I basically said, we like to, we see that Jesus has a, um, a tendency to love and serve the poor. So we want to do that. And we see that Jesus has a tendency to welcome people no matter what's going on in their life. So we want to do that. Because Jesus defines his doctrine statement by loving people. And he does that by washing feet. And he does that by serving widows and orphans and standing in front of those who would accuse and disarming uh, the people that would, that would seek to do harm. He befriended the isolated. He touched the untouchables. He systematically dismantled structures that dehumanized people. He promoted the welfare and social value and equality of disenfranchised people, including women and minorities. He wept with those who mourned. He welcomed children and he turned over tables of injustice. He made wrong things right. And right at the end, what he did is he sought forgiveness for his enemies, even when they were nailing him to a cross. So let me be really clear here. If you believe that love looks or sounds like accusation or condemnation or manipulation, you are wrong. Love looks like Jesus hanging on a cross for his enemies. Those who enter the kingdom are those who love. Plain and simple. Love God, love others, love those who are hungry and thirsty and alone and naked and sick and imprisoned. Love your neighbor, love your enemies. And that way you will be children 
of your Father in heaven. And if we act without love, we act without Christ. If we act without love, we have nothing. Even if our doctrine is good, even if we uh, sing the praises of angels, even if we have the, you know, all of the mysteries of the universe unlocked, even if we have the most grand understanding, even if we have the prophetic word from heaven, if we have no love, we have nothing. This is what it means to be a Christian. We follow Jesus and we do as Jesus did. Nothing more than that, nothing less than that is acceptable. This is the testimony of the kingdom of God, that they love one another. They love neighbour, friend, family, enemy. And we are called not to simply love those that we identify with. We are called to love God and others. And even at the extreme, we are called to love our enemies. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you didn't just give us a a stone tablet with rules on it. You gave us uh, your son, that you became flesh to, to show us how you feel, to show us what you think, um, and to show us your love. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we have an example in Jesus to follow. And that we can feel caught up and complicated by all of the teaching and all the ideas and all the things. But right at the heart of all of that, the gospel is that you love us and died for us. Because you, um, because you want to be close with us and you don't want us to be enemies. So I pray that we would lay down our lives and that we would love people in whatever circumstance or situation, that we wouldn't create any boundaries or barrier between you and other people, that we would only draw people into your love and your embrace. And I pray that as a community, we would do better at loving one another and also loving our neighbour. And, and somewhere, if, if they exist, we would even love our enemies. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.